Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. So today we have a hot topic. As you all know, if you've been with us before, we start for 10, maybe 15 minutes on a topic that we select, um, and then we're happy to answer any questions you have related to fundraising and or capital campaigns. So do go ahead and get the Q&A box open, and that is where you put your questions. I just want to remind you that if you can keep your question to a sentence or two at the most, it's more likely we will answer it. And those of you who type us paragraphs, it's hard to talk and read and think at the same time. So keep your, your questions short for to help us out. All right, Andrea, today we're going to talk about how to think about hiring a capital campaign consultant, when, how, if you should, when you should, when you shouldn't, all those good questions swirling about the boardrooms. Why don't you kick us off? Yes. So thank you, Amy. You know, Amy and I thought we, we really could talk. We could just talk for an hour on the subject, but we will refrain from doing that. And we will move over to your questions in about 10 or 15 minutes. But I want to begin this way. If you are getting ready to hire a consultant, here is a big don't in our view. And Amy knows what this is. Don't sit down and create an RFP, a request for proposals, and send it out to 20 consulting firms. It is a lousy way to do it for all kinds of reasons, and I'm amazed at how many people do it that way. Now, Amy, let's unpack why it's a bad idea to send RFPs, and there are a bunch of things. Why don't you start, and then I'll I'll join in. All right. I know that is probably going to come as a surprise and a shock. And I'm guessing that RFPs, you know, comes partly out of government, partly out of the business world. And so many board members think of it as best practice. Um, And I think that that's where it comes from. A board member insists that there's an RFP, but here's the problem we see with them. First of all, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about is that when you write an RFP, you are doing some of the work that you should actually have a consultant be doing for you. You're telling them what you think they need, and then everybody responds squeezed into the same square peg, right? And the consultant is not left to be creative or thoughtful in their ability to tell you what they would do or how they would respond to the challenges that you're facing or or your campaign needs. Um, So number one issue is that you are 
telling organizations or consultants what you think you need. And it may not actually but be what you really need based on people's other consultants' experience. They might come at the issues a different direction or a different way. But by creating an RFP, you've sort of forced them into a box. So that's number one. The number, Wait, the second, let me, yeah. Let me take that a step farther. Okay, go ahead. I think that's a great start. And and the step farther is this. When you are looking to, to select a consultant, and we are going to get to this question of, do you really need a consultant? Thank you for that, Jason. But when you have decided you need a consultant and you start the selection process, you are looking hard to get consultants to reveal to you who they are and how they work. That's, that's what you're trying to find out in all of your communications with them. So if you tell them, answer these questions in this way, you lose the ability to see what they would do if left to their own devices. And, and that's a bad idea. You, you want to learn how they would think about approaching your project. And in doing that and seeing how they do that, you're going to learn whether or not you want to work with them. So it's really doing an RFP you lose in two ways. Number one, you don't get to find out what consultants think you should do. And hopefully the consultant knows more about the project, about how to do it than you do. And second of all, you don't get to see really how the consultant thinks and functions because you've given them a little format and they've had to fit into it. You want to see who they are without a format. So that's, that's number one. Did we miss anything on that, Amy? Yeah. Well, I would just add that I think, you know, the most experienced and the busiest consultants don't respond to RFPs. So what you're going to get when you do an RFP is consultants that don't have enough work. Now, you know, for better or for worse, I think that that is honestly the case. And so if you have board members pushing you to do an RFP, explore the the pros and cons with them. Um, but to me, I, you know, I haven't responded to an RFP in, in a decade. When sent, people send them to us, we say, listen, we don't respond to RFPs. I ask a couple of questions. One is, first of all, why did you send it to me? Are you sending it to 20 or 30, you know, consultants that you Googled and that you found? If so, I really have no interest because then often we're being compared on price. I'm not really interested in that, right? I'm interested in being compared on service and quality and my approach. So number one, I'm never going to respond to a RFP that's being sprinkled out to sort of as many people and hoping for responses. That's what ultimately happens. Um, I say, if you've sent it to me because you know me, you want me for the project, in addition to two or three other people, then let's have a conversation. And then I'll think about whether or not I'm going to give you a proposal, but it's not going to be within the confines or the constructs usually of the RFP that you've put together. Um, so anyways, all right. No RFP. Rule number one, no RFP. Now I right. want to jump to Jason and then I want to go to Barbara Hudson because for two reasons, but let me start, let's start with Jason. Now we're really talking about this in the cap in the context of capital campaign consultants. So there are opportunities for using consultants in other ways, but here we're talking about capital campaign consultants. And the question is, do you really need one? That's a good question. 
That's a good question. Yeah. And the answer is not the same for every organization necessarily. So let's explore. Yeah. So many, you know, many people, many organizations only do capital campaigns once every 10 or 15 or even 20 years. And of course, capital campaigns have very big goals. They are high stakes, high stakes processes. The goals are big, the anxiety runs high. And because they don't happen very often, many people don't have really deep experience on how to do capital campaigns. And that's why for capital campaigns in particular, people often feel that they, that they want a consultant who has a lot of experience. Right. Even people who are very experienced in the development field and, you know, as development directors or vice presidents, even if they've been in the business 5, 10, 20, 30 years, chances are they have never done very many, if any, campaigns from the beginning to the end. And chances are that even if they did, they weren't shaping the campaign. They weren't designing the campaign. They were probably working with a consultant. So you're... The, the chances are good that, that, that the depth of experience within your institution about capital campaigns is not as deep as you would like it to be, which is a pretty good reason to hire an expert to work with someone by your side who really knows what they're talking about. And the, the people who know about capital campaigns, because they do them again and again and again, are, guess what? Consultants. Right. So, Jason, I would almost argue that that you're asking the wrong question and I shouldn't say it that way. But the question that I hope that you would ask is what kind of consulting help do you need? Right. So not all consultants or consulting help is created equal. There, there's a lot. There's a large spectrum of what kind of support and guidance you can receive, and so um, to Andrea's point about most people in nonprofits, even if you have board members who have been involved in multiple campaigns and they feel experienced, or staff who have been part of multiple campaigns. It, there are lots and lots of benefits to having an outside advisor, guide, somebody to help with accountability or strategy or technique or planning. And so there's lots of ways to think about what kind of support, guidance, help you need. And it depends a lot on the experience of the staff and how big or small the staff is and what kind of campaign you're running. Um, but I would just say we you want to think about what kind of support. And, you know, the reason that Andrea and I, of course, we're totally biased, right? We feel so strongly that you need some sort of support is because we talk to organizations every day that either have misguided notions or have already set up the campaigns badly. I mean, Andrea spoke to somebody this week who before they did anything else, they put together a brochure, they're ready to send it to their whole mailing list, they're selling bricks, they're ready to um, sort of go public before they've even talked to their largest donors. Um, and it, you may think that that only happens once in a while, but those types of things, um, where if you set it up badly, for lack of a better word, 
um, it gets you into a pickle. You know, people come to us and say, well, a board member went rogue and, you know, gave away a naming opportunity for a price that doesn't match the campaign or, you know, whatever. There's a million scenarios. So I think, yes, you do need a consultant. The question is, what kind of help do you need? How much help and what type of support? Okay, Andrea, your turn, and then we'll go to more questions. Yeah, you know, we often uh, talk about beginner's mistakes, right? and there are there are a number of mistakes that people make in capital campaigns that to us are just beginner's mistakes. I mean, one is thinking that the money is going to come in in even amounts, that if you're going to raise, you know, a million dollars, you're going to raise it with $100,000 contributions, right? Which, of course, never happens, right? That's a that's a beginner's mistake. And, and as galling as it is, it is very common that board members for your organization will listen to outsiders, that will listen to us, to outside consultants in a way that they're not going to listen to you. So even if you know that money isn't going to come in in even amounts, right, when you say it, your board kind of just lets it go. When Amy or I or a consultant comes in to say it, that they have paid good money for advice from, they will they will listen better. I know that's galling. It is galling, but it's also <laughs> true. <laughs> um, so Gary, thank you for putting this in the chat. Gary says, you don't want to get the cheapest advice, but the best based on your campaign goal, right? So really thinking about what are the needs of your organization? What do you want to accomplish? So, um, and that sort of leads into Christine's question is what might be a good hourly rate for a consultant? And I'm going to start with that one. Christine, I don't want you to ever pay I'm going to think about this. I don't want you to ever pay a capital campaign consultant by the hour. Um, You want to pay by the project, by results, by achievements. I shouldn't say results. That's going to make people think that we're uh, guaranteeing fundraising results, and we're not. But um, what they will help you accomplish Okay, pick that up, Andrea. No hourly rates for consultants. That's not the point. And nobody should be billing. No capital campaign consultants should be billing by the hour. Yeah. Now that said, some consultants, a fair number of consultants have a per diem, right? They have a daily rate on which they figure out what it is they're going to charge. But for example, they will give you a proposal for to do a feasibility study, for example, or they will give you a proposal to take you through the quiet phase of their campaign, right? They will, and and the proposal will actually be based on their calculation of how much they charge as a daily rate. And that might vary these days from, I don't know, $1,500 a day at the low end up to several thousand dollars at the high end. Um, But but really, they should and you should be talking to them about the campaign as a whole, not just about how much it's going to cost for that particular hour or moment. OK, so every once in a while, Andrea and I disagree. And this is going to be one of those times. Oh, good. I, you know, I really don't want you to think about paying by the day. Right. Because. To me, that's not based on the value that they're providing. I want you to think about 
you know, if you want to pick up the phone and call your consultant and ask them a question, I don't want them charging you or nickel and diming you, you know, and a day, what is a day? How long's the lunch break? You know, did they work slowly? Do they work quickly? To me, it's about what are you getting? Is there a campaign plan? Are you getting guidance? Are you getting strategy? Are you doing a feasibility study? So what are the outcomes all right. I mean, I, I yeah. agree with you. And I didn't say they would charge by the day. What I said is that most consultants have a daily rate on the basis of which they figure out yeah. how much they're going to charge. And they it's a rare consultant that doesn't have that. Okay. If you ask them what it is, they'll tell you. Now, that doesn't <laughs> mean that they will necessarily track their time that way. I mean, you have to ask your consultant, how do you bill and how do you figure out what the bill is? So you're going to find many variations on that theme. In fact, some of our campaign advisors, some of our best campaign advisors charge based on, on daily rates Days. when they do yeah. projects of their own. Okay. So you All right. rule it out, right? <laughs> All right. And, and it's worth asking when you're going to hire a consultant, you want to know how do you figure out how much money how much money you're charging and how, what will your bills look like? Yes. Will you actually keep track of time or will you just bill for, you know, three months to do this set of work? Right. So it, it varies all over the place, by all means, ask those questions. Yeah. Those so questions. And I do agree with Amy, that <laughs> the idea of billing on hourly or even daily is totally anathema to me. Um, but okay. talk Good. to your folk, talk to your consultants about it. So Christine's sort of sending a follow-up. She says, true, but expenses need to be defined. And that's absolutely yes. true. You it's should true. know what you're paying. There shouldn't be any, you know, miscellaneous charges or surprises, I should say. You know, if your consultant feels like you're using up more time or it's taking more time, they need to have that conversation with you. And let me give you a perfect example. You know, there was a day and there probably will soon be a day again where consultants are traveling a lot to go to their clients. Now, the question is always this, if I'm flying from New York to Chicago for a client and I've got to get to the airport, wait in the airport, sit on a plane, get off, get to my client, that's probably five hours, let's say, four hours, five hours altogether. Who's paying for that time? Good question. Right? Well, and, and Cindy's asking, which is along the same lines, how important is it to stay local with the consultant? Now she's added to raise the money. So that is also another very interesting question, Christine. The question is, who's actually doing the fundraising? Um, but you know, to us at the Capital Campaign Toolkit, let's start with the first part is, do you need a local consultant, which goes to Andrea's point. So over the last several years, we have decided that it is effective, affordable, efficient to be consulting virtually, right? This is not a COVID uh, thing that we're doing here at the Capital Campaign Toolkit way prior to to COVID. We are and were a virtual company and we don't show up at your conference room table and sit there for six or eight hours and bill you by the day or by the hour. Um, we truly believe that because of technology and the way that people communicate these days, it is just as effective and so much more affordable and efficient to 
um, to, to communicate virtually. And that means that you can use any consultant on earth, the best consultant on earth. They do not have to be in your time zone. They do not have to be in your neighborhood. Uh, now, Christine's sort of taking, or uh, somebody, uh, Cindy, I think it was, taking this a step farther in terms of, you know, locally, does a person have to be local to raise the money? And I would argue that the vast majority of campaign consultants do not do the fundraising. They guide and teach and advise people at the organization to raise the money. Um, anything and you want to add? There is some more to be said about that. I, I, for many years, was a local consultant. I worked in one region in Pennsylvania, and I did one campaign after another, after another, after another. And what happened in that process was that I got to know all of the donors. At the foundation, the heads of the foundations knew me, the largest donors in town knew me, everybody knew me, and they came because I had a good run. I was quite, my campaigns were all, were all successful. They came to trust that if I was working for a client, for an organization, that campaign was going to be successful, and they trusted my work with them. So I became sort of well-known in that community because they knew I knew what I was doing and I knew both the, the donors and the organizations and I did my best for both of them, right? There was a benefit to be had in that. But the benefit is not to be had just because someone is local. They also have to be seasoned and experienced campaign consultants. So what? keep this in mind, what a capital campaign consultant brings to the table is deep experience, a lot of experience, not having done a half a campaign at the hospital where they just quit. That doesn't count as deep campaign experience. So it's wonderful if you have someone with deep experience in your community who is well-respected and with whom you have a relationship, I would encourage you to look carefully at that. But if you have someone who's done a half a campaign or a campaign and a half and happens to be in your community, that's not enough experience. This, there is stuff to know about capital campaigns that you only learn by experience. Now, it makes me sad to say, say that in a way because, because I too began not knowing what I was doing. And if it hadn't been for the organizations that hired me then with a wing and a prayer, it's like, I wouldn't be where I am today. <laughs> so, so I'm sorry to the, you know, the new consultants in the field um, that I'm doing a disservice to, but, but I wouldn't have hired me when I was beginning if, if somebody had asked me about that. So we have to go to Barbara Hudson because last week, I she raised this question for me for us last week, and I said I was going to get to it last week, and I didn't, and I felt bad, and I asked her to remind me this week, and she has done so. So I want to take a break and specifically talk about Barbara's question. Barbara has asked this: Has anyone done a virtual campaign kickoff event in the past fourteen months? If so, did it go well? Did it not go well? Or did you just decide to do a campaign announcement and skip the event? So I'd love you to chat in for Barbara in the chat box, whether you have experienced positive or negative with a kickoff during the, this period when everything had to be virtual. 
particularly if you had great experience, please let her let her know. So, Barbara, I'm so sorry about last week, and I'm happy to bring it up to bring it up here. Um, I do have a lot of thoughts about campaign kickoffs in general, and let me see if I can. Andrea, before you go into it, yes. I just want to make sure that you distinguish between what many people might think of a kickoff at the beginning of a campaign uh, versus the public kickoff. Yes. So those are two very different and distinct times during a campaign and the terminology might be fuzzy. So uh, kicking off a campaign at the very beginning when you're asking for leadership level gifts, what we define as a kickoff as the public portion at the very end of a campaign. Right. So yes, thank you for that, Amy. That's exactly right. You know, what we talk about is as a campaign kickoff is the demarcation between the public phase of the campaign, a quiet phase of the campaign and the public phase of the campaign. And if you really look at what is important about that, while it's wonderful to have a celebration and to have to be able to honor the donors who have already given and to line up the donors you're going to be going to, what really happens at that kickoff is that you announce your, your public goal. You announce the final goal of your campaign, because during the entire early phase of the campaign, you are using a working goal. You may well adjust your goal either up or down before you have this so-called kickoff. So if you strip everything else away and you do no event at all, what you need to do is to say, how do we have a public relations event that actually announces the, camp, the, the, the final goal of our campaign and announces how much money we have to raise to get to that goal? That's the heart of the matter. Everything else is, is wonderful and lovely if you can do it, but doesn't matter a whole lot, or at least not as much. And just to add on to that quickly, so we believe that you probably shouldn't be kicking off your campaign publicly, and that's how we use the term kickoff, is the public portion of the campaign until you've already raised 60, 70, or 80% of your campaign dollars. So... Um, so there should, and so by using that definition, there is no kickoff at the very beginning of a campaign because you're quietly talking to the biggest donors. So there's no events, there's no kickoff. And that's why we use kickoff, you know, for the public portion, which is after you've already raised 75% of your dollars. So there's no event or kickoff at the, the start of your campaign. That's the quiet phase. And you're going to talk to people individually. Um, so I just want to really clarify the difference between those. Yes. The other thing to think about about kickoffs is it let, let's pretend we haven't been going through this COVID thing and you're actually having kickoffs. They can range all over the place. I mean, I, I had one client years ago, the kickoff, they, their construction had started and they put a tent on the land where construction had started and they invited their community to have hot chocolate and donuts in the tent on a cold, chilly fall day. And they, they recognized the people who had given the largest gifts to date. They said how much money was yet to be raised. Everybody raised a glass, a cup of hot chocolate. And that was it, right? Everybody tooted some horns and, and clapped, clapped a bunch, and that was it. So it cost about, you know, 300 bucks to do that kickoff. It was totally appropriate for the organization. That's on one side. On the other side, you have campaigns that have 
huge, big, fancy five course meals and and other stuff, right? Yeah. That that costs thousands and thousands of dollars. So you have to look at the culture of your organization. What happens in a kickoff event besides announcing the goal is that you recognize the people who have given the largest gifts. You announce how much money you have raised to date and you give the, the, the final goal and how much and by when you want to finish this campaign. So you, that begins the energy for the, for the broader base, base of your campaign. That's all it does. You can do it virtually. You can do it any old. Really, there are many ways to do it. Yes, you can do it with announcements on your website, you know, sort of invitations. You can do it with press releases. So you don't need an actual event necessarily, especially in COVID times. Um, Okay. Thank you for your chat about, about your virtual presentation to the public, public, to your constituents. If anybody else has done one, right, please let us, let us know, put it in the chat for Barbara. She may, she may want to follow up or just sort of have a little survey. Okay. So we're at the halfway mark. I just want to make a quick announcement and then we're going to go back to our questions. Uh, We have never done this before, but we are running a summer special. And that is because Andrea and I are taking six weeks off of these Monday toolkit talks. So in July and the first couple of weeks in August, uh, we will be putting toolkit talks this Monday call on hold uh, so that we can have a little bit of planning and strategic time in our for the summer. Um, But that means that we don't want you to miss out on our weekly calls. And so our clients, our paying subscriber members, will continue to have their weekly calls with us on Wednesdays in a much more intimate setting. Um, it's a much smaller group. We're all on um, Zoom together. Everybody can see one another, another ask questions, respond to each other. Um, so we're offering a summer, special summer discount. Um, $250 off each of your first two months to cover that summer when we are not going to be doing Toolkit Talks Live, and then we will resume in mid-August. But we would love to have you join as a paying subscribing member of the Toolkit at the essentials level for only $500 a month. Um, Andrea, we will be sending out an email with the special code to do that, to sign up if you're ready. I think it's summer 500. I think that's what it is, but the email will come in about an hour. What would, you wanna add anything to that? Or are we ready to go back to questions? No, I think it's I think it's exciting. And Barbara, Barbara actually bought last week, after last week, so that so that she could be on the Wednesday calls because she's gonna ask her same question there. That'll, that'll be fun. We'll see if we get more, more response there on, on Wednesday, on Wednesday, Barbara. Uh, okay, so Jason wants to know whether there are levels of consultants and uh, does it, so that it makes sense to use one. Yeah. Yes, there's all different levels of consultants, both in terms of expertise and in terms of what they provide. And so you should be looking for and thinking about finding a consultant that makes sense for your organization and what you need at the current time. You know, if you're... Uh, 
very small, very grassroots organization embarking on your first ever campaign, you might use a newer consultant who is going to put more hours and boots on the ground and and work with you every step of the way and and quite frankly, be at a lower price point. That might be what's affordable and effective for your organization. Um, if you're more of a midsize or really going for it campaign, bigger campaign, you might look for a consultant with more experience and expense is less of an issue. Value is more of the important factor. What other kinds of levels of consultants would you talk about, Andrea? Well, I think there are, there are different levels of consultants throughout the campaign at different times in the campaign. And that's, that's a good question for consultants you would talk to. What levels of support would they provide during which, pay, which parts of the campaign? would they provide them? So on one hand, as Amy mentioned, it's, you know, okay, how much support will you be getting? How much hands-on support will you be getting from a consultant? And that's all all up and, you know, you can go from A to Z on that. And the other hand is you don't need the same level of support throughout your campaign. You're going to need more support in the beginning of your campaign than you do at the end, by which time, hopefully your feet are on the ground, you know what you're doing. You can, you can just have an occasional check-in. So it's a it's a you know something to consider and something to ask consultants. Yeah, I I think let's give a tangible example. I mean, we've designed the toolkit in just that way. We have multiple levels, and so organizations who are just thinking about a campaign and starting their planning way before they're ready to ask for gifts can come on at our essentials level and get some support. And then as they're ramping up, they can upgrade to have their own campaign advisor when they're ready to do a feasibility study or a guided feasibility study as we do. They can upgrade even more. And then after they've done the quiet phase, they can uh, change levels or through the quiet phase as they've done most of their planning and their strategy and they're on a roll, they can shift back down to a little bit less support. And so that's a literal context, you know, context example of, of how we've designed the toolkit so that we can be there to support you as you need it through each stage and phase of your campaign. People really love that flexibility. I mean, they really take full advantage of it, which is which is fun. They'll they ramp up to do a guided feasibility study, and then they ramp down. Occasionally, a project gets stopped for some reason because they're waiting for an approval. They don't want to move forward until they get their approval. So then they can pause. They can move down to the to the lower level of the toolkit, and then when they get their approval, they move back up again. I think it's it, it really was Amy and I wrestled a lot with whether we could create that that model and it and it works. People really appreciate it. We people stay on with us for a long time because they have that ability to flex according to their according to their needs. Now, um, so so Meg has asked bricks or no bricks. Amy, how do you <laughs> vote on that? Well, I 
I vote for BRICS at the very end of your campaign, the last 10% when you want the whole community to participate. I mean, you do need to think about how big of an administrative nightmare BRICS are because it is a lot of details. I'd love to know in the chat if people are doing BRICS at the end of their campaign. Um, it is definitely not something you wanna do at the beginning of your campaign. You've got to have raised 85 or 90% of the dollars for your campaign before you roll out your BRICS campaign, if you're going to do it. Um, and there is no best price point, Meg. I think it depends on the community you're in, uh, how much you need to raise, what makes sense in the context probably of other campaigns and the overall context of your campaign. But I'd love to hear if other people are doing BRIC campaigns. Andrea, do you have different thoughts on BRICS or no BRICS? All right, go ahead. I sort of agree with you. And there's a big and for me, which is I'm always looking at opportunity costs. You know how much time, energy and effort it takes <laughs> to do a brick campaign, not only the selling of the bricks, but then the managing of the process and figuring out who's where in the walk of bricks and who's going to weed the bloody walks so that it doesn't get overrun and, and people's names get misspelled. I mean, it is a huge amount of work to do bricks. And if you were to really track that and say, all right, if we could take that time and actually be doing real outreach to donors, I'm pretty sure bricks don't pay off. Right. I'd rather somehow I would rather not do bricks. I'd rather do a tiled wall inside, hmm. right, which I think can be done sim more simply. I mean, there, I've seen an organization where they actually had a tile maker inside having people paint and draw on their tiles and hmm. they take it, take it out, glaze it and bring it back and install it on the wall. Right? Oh, that's, that's fun. A better, that's a better idea than than bricks. Bricks are heavy. They're expensive to ship. They're they're difficult to put in walkways. Then people care if their walkway is weedy. Right? <laughs> that, I mean, that, you have to think about that stuff, right? It's not. So I'm not. All right, you heard it here. Tiles, not bricks. Tiles, Tiles that people can design themselves. All right, let's go to Paul's question. He was first. Yes. Um, how do you compare the words donate and contribute? Um, so I'm going to go back to the chat and see if any have anybody has any differences or thoughts on the difference between donate and contribute. I'm not sure I do. I think they can be used interchangeably, I think. Donate. Yeah, I think I, I don't have a strong feeling about it either. If anybody else does or rationale, I'd be interested in. Uh, right. In 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 hearing, hearing about that. All right. So Barbara's asked another question and Barbara, we're going to, well, I'm going to be critical of your shake loose analogy. Um, so Barbara's question is how to shake loose endowed scholarship gifts from donor advised funds and family foundations. Uh, Barbara, I have to say, if that's the the sort of sentiment or attitude you're bringing to these donors, they are not, they're going to feel it and it's not going to be good. You're not shaking loose anything from any donors. You want to be inspiring them, motivating them. Uh, what are some other words we can use? But um, really it's about inspiring them, motivating them to be excited about scholarships. If you're going to them thinking that you're shaking things loose, you're going to get change. That's what you shake loose. You yeah, get let, let me say that Barbara is one of many, many, many people who use 
who has used language like that. So while we're not keen on the language, Barbara, you are far from alone. How many times have we heard language? uh, How many of you, and I won't ask you to raise your hands because you know what we're going to do to you, what we just did to poor Barbara. How (laughs) many of you use the the language low-hanging fruit? Yes. Right. Or hit them up. Or I mean, there. If you look at the language that we use around fundraising, it is stunningly bad. And and I think we all need all of us need to work on using language that's inspiring. And and again, Barbara, thank you for using that language language because it gives us a chance to call everyone out on it because everyone falls prey to that. It is. It's remarkable. So whenever you think about how you're going to talk about raising money, be sure that you think about the language that will inspire. Now, that doesn't mean that Barbara doesn't have a really good question, which is how would you inspire people in family foundations, for example, to give to endowed scholarship programs, right? That's the gist of the question. Yes. Or, or other people. And, and as in most fundraising, it's going to have to do with whether those people have a connection with your institution, whether they care about providing scholarships, why they care about providing scholarships, if their children got scholarships or if they believe in scholarships. It's whether it's a family foundation or any other kind of donor, the, the process of figuring out how to inspire them to give has to do with getting to know them well enough so that you know why they would want to make scholarships available. And then, you know, then you have a way to go. If it turns out that the, that the mother in this family, you know, got her education because she got amazing scholarships to the, to the private school she went to, then you know where to go with that. So the answer is in the, in the donors that you're going to approach. And your work is to find out enough about them so that you know how to approach them. Excellent. So Karen's in a pickle and without reading the whole, all of the details, they've been given a notice to, from their landlord to vacate the property. So they need to raise money quick in order to purchase a new home for her organization. So the question is, you know, what what do they do and what is alternate plans B and plan C? So Karen, you know, it's it's obviously always a problem when people need to raise money quickly because this type of fundraising isn't usually done quickly. Um, although in certain cases, Deadlines are very motivational for donors. And so, you know, you say you need to raise a million dollars. So the question is, have you done a gift range chart and looked at the number of donors you need at various gift levels in order to be able to successfully accomplish this in the next, you know, as you said, six weeks. So if you have a donor who wants to give a quarter of a million, could give a quarter of a million or more, and you have two or three or four donors who could give 100,000 or more, um, you may be able to come close to your goal because you're only talking to 10 people and they may be able to do that kind of, you know, that size gifts in the next six weeks. So 
it's perfectly possible. Um, of course, we don't have any idea who is um, who are among your supporters, your current supporters, and your current donors. And so, if it's improbable that you would raise that kind of money because you don't have ten people within your immediate circle who are able to give those kind of dollars, then you do need to go to a Plan B or a Plan C, um, which might involve financing. Right. So talk to your bank, your local bank, and find out what your financing options are. And, you know, I'm not sure if a million dollars is what the whole property costs or if that's the down payment. So there's lots of different uh, lots of different factors, I think, that come in when you're thinking about purchasing property. Yeah, the the um, I think that's I I think that's right. You have to look and see who's on who's under your nose. And if I were you, I would have several plans going at the same time, right? And see how much money you can raise and have plans for fun, for for financing the rest of it. This is not doing A and then B and C. It's getting all of them ready to go because your time is limited and you need to know what your backup plans are. So I want to go back to Barbara, um, who, who says that she finds that fewer large endowment gifts have happened since donor-advised funds became commonplace and people feel ownership of the dollars. I think donor-advised funds are really interesting. The psychology of donor-advised funds are interesting. And here's the way I think about it. So people... You're, you, all of you, have a responsibility of getting to know your donors. How your donors, and of asking them for gifts in a way that will appeal to them, right? That is based on who they are and what they are. How your donors choose to give is a whole different story, whether they give through a cash gift or, or stocks or their donor-advised funds. That's up to them how they give. Now, the people I know who have donor-advised funds describe it to me as it feels like play money to them because they've given it away before, right? They put the money in a donor-advised funds when they really don't own the money anymore. They don't own that money anymore. But they can sort of encourage the foundation right, to give it wherever they want. So when they sit down to say, well, how am I going to give that money away? They no longer are wrestling with, with whether it is their money or not. In fact, they don't feel ownership of the money when they have a donor-advised fund, right? They feel like, oh, well, we've already given it away. I have to give it away somehow or other. How am I going to do that? So, so it would be interesting for you to talk to some of those donors about what their experience is like giving away money from their donor-advised funds. That's a good question to have with your donors, right? I think the other issue here in Barbara's question is endowment gifts, right? So endowment gifts are notoriously hard to raise anyways. Lots of people don't want to give to endowments except through bequests. So I'm wondering if you are not giving them enough options to give to. I mean, if you're only asking for endowments, and scholarship, as I think was in your earlier question, they may not be interested in doing that. So is there an opportunity to provide current support for today that doesn't just go into it, simply go into an endowment fund? So just thinking about what options you're giving your donors 
Are you talking to them about supporting your endowment via bequest, which is the most common way that endowments do get supported? And so if you're asking for gifts to your endowment now, you may be barking up the wrong tree. So just really thinking creatively about how are we going to grow the endowment and how are we going to grow current programs and services and what do donors want to give to and what will they support now and what will they support through a planned gift or in the future? Yeah, I mean, the scholarship endowments are interesting because you can, of course, talk about supporting supporting a student for 10 years of education or 12 years or you know whatever kind of school you are. And then you can quantify that. You can say, you know, you can pledge to give a, an annual gift or you can put a chunk of money into the endowment that will pay for a student to do this ad infinitum. Again, that's up to the donor how they would want to do it. But the focus of it is making an education possible for a student for multiple years. All right, we're going to get to Janet's Janet question. It's an interesting one. Yes, but let me just remind people before we, we, we have another 10 minutes or so, but before we start to wrap up, I do want to just remind everybody that we will be sending out an email in about 45 minutes, uh, or you should have gotten it if you're already listening to this on a podcast. The email already came. Um, the, the code to continue with us every single week throughout the summer and sign up as a subscriber to our uh, toolkit this summer is um, summer 500 capital the S. Capitals all yes, capitals? just no, just the S capital S for summer 500. Uh, the deadline is going to be June 30th because it's only for the summer, the discount while we are taking off um, off for the summer. And yes. Jules is asking, what is the actual cost of continuing, not just the discount? So if you go to the website, capitalcampaigntoolkit.com, up in the very top right corner, there is a sign up button and it brings you to all the pricing. Our essentials level for our basic membership is $750 a month that does not include the discount. Uh, so the summer discount is $250 off that 750 for the first two months. So we do hope you'll join us. And of course, thank you, Julie, for asking that question. We don't, we don't expect that you would join us just for the summer. We do expect that you would find all of the resources in the toolkit. So amazing that you would continue on with us for the duration of your campaign. And of course, we'd be happy to discuss that with you. So let's go to Janet's question. Yes. What if your organization feels that they are already paying someone to run the capital campaign with their donor relations director? Any advice about how to address this? Well, you know, Janet, one of the things that I have periodically said to, to board members who have sort of raised that question to me is, is um, when was the last time you walked into the office of your donor relations director and found them twiddling their thumbs looking for something to do. I, I, if you don't think that their time is spent raising the annual money for your organization, you think you can just wave a magic wand and all of a sudden have them raise $5 million more or $3 million or $10 million more? Right? What are you not understanding about what that person does every day? to raise the money that is raised annually. So it just honestly makes no sense unless 
unless the donor relations director is not doing anything, right, is just sitting there waiting for a capital campaign to come along, it makes no sense to assume that you're, for your board to assume that they can simply say, well, go raise all this money. So that's number one. Number two is the need for expertise, for deep expertise. And the chances are very good that your donor relations director doesn't have that. Because the stakes of a capital campaign are so high, it's important to have someone on board who really knows what they're doing. And it will save the organization a lot of heartache, a lot of money, if they actually bring on someone who knows what they're doing. And it will help them raise much more money. Finally, I would say that every capital campaign should have a budget. That is, what is it going to cost you to do the campaign? And the budget for hiring consultants and additional staff should be in your campaign budget, which often amounts to up to 10% of your campaign goal. So if your campaign goal is $10 million, you actually are going to raise a million dollars on top of that just for all of the campaign expenses. So they won't have to take that money out of the operating budget they're going to take it out of the campaign budget. And that, for many board members, feels like a great relief. Did I leave something out, Amy? No, excellent. Uh, we do have one more question from Carol, who's asking about organizations that don't have any donor pool or supporters. And, you know, it depends on who your board members are connected to and what kind of connections those people who are associated and affiliated with your organization have. But, you know, and of course, every organization has initial kickoff fundraising to get started, uh, whether that's in the style and format of a capital campaign, you know, it could be. Um, most organizations do need a donor pool and a base of supporters to have a successful capital campaign, but um, everybody starts somewhere. Gen generally, we would like to see you have, have a base of supporters, but we're happy to uh, talk with you quickly unless that gives you the obvious answer. If you don't have any board members or, or current people that are supporting your organization or that can bring resources and friends to the table, um, you're not ready for a capital campaign. You know, Carol, we talked earlier about what we call beginner's mistakes. And it's a common beginner's mistake for someone to decide they're going to start an organization and they're going to go to Oprah Winfrey for money or to Bill Gates or to someone out there to fund their idea, their local idea. And that doesn't happen. You need to do the hard work of drawing people in who care about what you're doing and who are going to be willing to make contributions to support it. And there's just no way to short circuit that. That's what you have to do. As, as Amy says, you have to start somewhere and you have to start sometime. And today is a great time to start. But don't think you're going to be raising the money from some one of these billionaires who has a huge amount of money. They're not going to care about you and your project unless they happen to be your cousin or your brother or, you know, or your son or your mother or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which occasionally does happen. All right. Excellent. Um, and Carol's just asking how we, she can find us. 
You can find me at amy at capitalcampaigntoolkit.com. Andrea is andrea at capitalcampaigntoolkit.com. So for anybody who wants to reach us or send us a follow-up question, we would be happy to talk with you. Excellent. Andrea? We have, I think, two more weeks of this before we are done for the for for July and August. Yes, we're taking we're taking the summer off, but we've got the rest of June. So hopefully we'll see you for the next two weeks. We've got some good, juicy topics and we'll see you soon. It's great chatting with everybody. Yes. Thank you for being with us. For all of you who asked questions today, thank you so much for those questions. It really makes us happy when you're when you when you share with us what's on your mind. So we look forward to seeing you next week. And Amy, good to have you back. Thanks, Andrea. Talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.